Hello everyone, it's August 6th, 2019. So the GO-17 weather satellite is having some issues and we're gonna discuss them. When a satellite malfunctions, it's not fun. Finding the cause of the problem, seeing if it can be fixed, spoiler alert, probably not because it's in space. You get the idea. All right, lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 222 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. All right. So we got episode 222. I like that. We haven't had anything like this since episode 111, I guess. <laughs> yep. At first it was every 11 shows and now it's every 111 shows. Yep. At least we get to enjoy this for a while. Yeah. yeah. Right? For another... <laughs> Uh, until we get up to 1,111. Well, I was just going to wait for 333. That'll be cool. Mm -hmm. um, well, we kind of bantered ourselves out. I don't know what, yeah, we, right? what, what, what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For listeners, we just sat and talked with each other for about 45 minutes, a half hour. Um, and now we have nothing to, to start the show off yeah, with. Yeah, we're talking about Bluetooth and Bluetooth speakers. We, t we talked about desk setups and it was it was really a great conversation i wish you guys could have been here for it probably not that great but you know <laughs> no <laughs> we enjoyed it and we still didn't figure out what to do about your speaker situation so like if you want new speakers yeah yeah yeah, yeah. okay that's that's good if if anybody is an audiophile and can recommend some budget audio equipment here's the thing i want to get some just like bookshelf speakers probably klipsch or what's the what's the other uh popular low cost one um but the problem is that i also need a receiver and what i'd like to do is just buy like a cheap 30 dollar amp but i need to be able to switch between input sources because we want to be able to run a pc our tv and a record player through the same speakers and be able to select sources. And I don't want to spend a bunch of money because we just spent a bunch of money on uh, this desktop. And so, yeah, if anybody has a nice setup recommendation, I would love to hear it. And we're open to doing, you know, something with Bluetooth. Uh, maybe buying a, a Bluetooth module for the for the PC, and then two Bluetooth transmitters to just plug into the TV and the and the record player. I don't know. If you guys have a, a really nice turnkey solution or or something that's close to it, I would love to hear it. So anyhow, all right, well let's yeah let's move on to spaceflight because we're we're kind of like we're kind we're a little bit running behind, but no one's gonna know that who's listening because you know the show goes out at the same time. Uh, so this week in spaceflight history, we got a bunch of winners, I think. Bunch of winners, yeah. I thought that my clue was was at least a little obscure. We we even have some new folks in here, which is pretty cool. Uh, so La Loving, Carolyn Hopskind, uh, Tim Broadbent, HC Science, Jason Freeson, Tony Kent, Ben Hallert, and Moritz Lenz, which just sounds like a sci-fi evil villain name, which is fantastic. Good name. So the clue from last week was returning with pieces missing. And this week in spaceflight history is the 9th of August, 2005. It was the landing of STS-114. Um, so I was hoping that, that at least somebody was going to get both elements in their answer, uh, returning and pieces missing. And I think everybody kind of focused on one or the other. But that's okay. You're, you're all winners in my book. So STS-114... Um, was the return to flight after the Columbia disaster. And it took them 29 months to get back up and running. It should have been, I think, 28 months, but there was, <laughs> there was a little bit of a complication. So I almost made the clue this week about um, the fact that Atlantis was supposed to do the return to flight, but they found that Atlantis had an incorrectly installed um, hydraulic actuator for the rudder speed brake, which is where the uh, the vertical tail plane of the shuttle's got a rudder on it, and that rudder on landing, it does a really weird thing that not a lot of people notice, 
is the rudder splits in half mm-hmm. uh, and sort of steers left and right at the same time, if, if that's a good way to think about it. And so the rudder speed brake is just what it sounds like. It's a way to slow the vehicle down once it lands. And Atlantis had an actuator that was installed improperly. And so when they realized it, it cast you know, fleet-wide suspicion. We want to make sure that everything is working properly. So they grounded uh, all the orbiters and did a refurb on all of the rudder speed brakes. Discovery um, ended up being the orbiter to fly on 114 because its RSB refurb was completed first. That's that's why they chose it. So that, that was almost going to be the clue. So 114 is a really interesting flight because there are a lot of firsts. It was the first ever use of the orbiter boom sensor system, the OBSS, which if you think about the about about Canada Arm One, the the first Canada Arm kind of tucking into the crease where where the bay doors open, kind of like along that hinge. Well, on the other side, there's a there's another space to put something, and so they put an extender arm for Canada Arm, Canadarm uh, one, and it's basically a long stick that's long enough to be able to grab with the arm and then reach underneath the orbiter. And so there are visual cameras. There's also like a laser uh, system that um, that builds up a 3D model of whatever it's looking at. So this was the, the first use of that. And that's primarily used just to look for tile damage. It was also the first ever rendezvous pitch maneuver, which became a really fantastic thing aesthetically. Um, So basically, whenever shuttle visited ISS, um, before they docked, they would do a 360 degree pitch maneuver, and they would allow the folks on the ISS to take photos of the entire surface of the orbiter. And that's important for making sure that it's safe to land the vehicle. But, you know, from an aesthetic point of view, our best shots of the shuttle came from the rendezvous pitch maneuver uh, because you get these gorgeous photos of uh, shuttle with Earth in the background, and it's just wonderful. So this was the first ever second shuttle flight commanded by a woman. Uh, So STS-114 was commanded by Eileen Collins. And uh, she also flew the first uh, shuttle flight ever commanded by a woman. So th- those are a couple firsts, um, but the, the really big, fir- well, two firsts and a second. <laughs> uh, but the, the really big first was that it was the first on-orbit repair of a spacecraft ever. We'd never done this before. Uh, so what needed repairs? A, a lot of people are going to know right off the bat what's going on here. But I'm going to spin this out a little bit. So on launch, a couple seconds after launch, a bird struck the top of the external tank. And it actually like slid down the side of the ET in like a cartoon fashion. Uh, If only the bird wasn't killed, it would be very uh, comical. Um, But the bird didn't strike the orbiter. So that didn't require any repairs. Before SRB separation, a tile from the front landing gear door uh, suffered damage. It, we're not sure if something struck it uh, or if it just cracked, um, but in any event, a shard of that tile uh, was visible flying off of the door. And that, that shot, it, it's visible in literally one frame shot from the umbilical camera. That's also kind of weird because back then we didn't get that footage on launch. We got it after uh, shuttle was in orbit. So we didn't learn about that until three days later. 
but that was determined to not be an issue. We could we could return with that shard taken out. Then we lost a big chunk of foam from the ET. It was half the size of the one that caused the Columbia disaster, um, but still could have caused some damage. But that didn't hit the orbiter, so that's okay. And then a little bit after that, the, these, the chunks of foam came off after SRB separation, so much later in the flight. Uh, that, then a second smaller piece of foam came off of the ET, and it did strike the leading edge of the wing, uh, but they determined that given its size and mass, it didn't have enough momentum to cause any damage. In fact, it was like a tenth of the amount of momentum you'd need to cause damage, so, so that's okay. And, and while those things didn't cause damage that required repairs on orbit, um, they did actually delay the next shuttle launch, I think by like a year or something, because you know, we're seeing foam come off the ET and we thought that we had fixed it. So it, there was this long series of, of trying to figure out what's causing this foam to come off. And, and what's really unfortunate is the folks over at Mashoud actually took the blame for a long time. They were, they were blamed for mishandling the ETs and, and causing the foam to, to be loose enough to come off. But it actually turns out that it's uh, the way that we loaded fuel. It just, it caused thermal expansion and contraction uh, which loosened foam. And, uh, and so we ended up, we, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go ahead and exclude us from this one. NASA apologized and said, Hey, you know what? We blamed people who weren't at fault and we're, we're sorry for doing that. So if it's not all of those things, what was the repairs for it? They were for protruding gap fillers. So basically the underside of shuttle is covered in these tiles and the tiles can't touch each other um, because they expand and contract and if they expand and bump into each other um, they can cause stresses on each other and actually crack each other if they're too close and so they shove uh, ceramic impregnated fabric in between the tiles and in this case there were two gap fillers sticking out uh, of the bottom of of the shuttle so, so that's an issue because it causes disruption of laminar flow if Dustin Sandlin's listening, you're welcome. Uh, it's his favorite thing. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a good thing to have as a favorite. But, you know, it's not enough to, to not return a shuttle to the ground for. In fact, previous flights definitely had protruding gap fillers. Um, so STS-73, we know that it had protruding gap fillers. We saw them. Uh, but STS-28 also probably had protruding gap fillers. STS-128. STS-28, sorry, not 128. STS-28 had um, higher than expected uh, heat loads on the on the TPS on the way back. And it's probably because there were gap fillers sticking out, interrupting the laminar flow and causing hot air to basically get caught in between or, you know, caught up against the surface of, of mm-hmm. the TPS tiles. So we can return the shuttle with those sticking out, but why risk it? Um, they actually spent a lot of time trying to decide if it was worth, which was riskier, flying home with the uh, protruding gap fillers or doing the repairs because every rep- you know every EVA uh-huh. that you do comes with risks. And this one in particular not only came with risks to the astronauts doing the EVA but also came with risks to the spacecraft itself because to get to those gap fillers they were going to have to put uh somebody on the end of Canadarm 2 and actually fly them out on the end of the arm uh to go service the underside of the shuttle. Eventually they decided, you know, we're going to go ahead and fix these. Uh so like I said they they flew 
an astronaut out on the end of the robotic arm and they pulled two gap fillers. They literally just reached up and pulled them out uh, of the belly of the shuttle. And they were able to do that because uh, we don't need them on the way home. So there were two different types of gap fillers that were protruding. One was just for ascent. Uh, it caused, or it helped mitigate chatter because as the shuttle is ascending, it's going through all these different you know, flight regimes, like the different levels of the atmosphere and different speeds. And so there are multiple times when there are sonic booms coming off of the SRBs and the ET. And those sonic booms could cause the tiles to shake. And so one type of gap filler was just there to mitigate that chatter. Um, the other one was actually used um, returning. It, it helps uh, mitigate thermal load on the structure of the shuttle. Um, so basically, you know, we need these tiles to be a certain distance apart. And if they're that far apart, then between them is a nice gap where you can, you know, load up hot air or plasma or whatever it is. And uh, and so they shoved uh, these gap fillers in there just to keep hot air away from the structure. And that seems like a, something you don't want to do without. But the fact of the matter is that it wasn't a one flight necessity. It was a reusability necessity. It, you could fly multiple times without those gap fillers, but it would put more stress on the vehicle and, and it would make it harder to refly it later. Uh, so they decide, yep, we can just pull these out. Uh, and like I said, they pulled them out with their fingers. They didn't even need tools. It took, I think, less than a pound of force is what they decided. So it's kind of a weird operation to just go pull things off of a spacecraft. Mm -hmm. But that's what they did. Sounds sounds very old school way to do yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, and, and then they, they returned with uh, with no issues. It was a successful flight. Well, that's cool that I learned something new because I did not know that there were two types of gap fillers because I was about to ask, how can you return without them? But you're saying that there's the one just for the acoustics. Yeah. And then there's the one yeah. for the thermal expansion. I didn't know that. So they kind of sit next yeah. to each other in that little channel? Uh, no, it's different Different parts of the shuttle Okay, um, mm -hmm. have, have different types of gap fillers. That's true because I guess certain places don't heat up as much or certain. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I see. Exactly. Yeah. You got it. Well, that was a good clue. Um, I guess not as hard as you thought, but how about our clue for next week? Is that one going to be hard? I think so. Actually, I think this one's going to be tough. Yeah. We'll see. <laughs> All right. The clue for next week is in 1962, wash your hands. That's it. Just wash your hands. Okay. Wash your hands. Good advice. 1962. The first thing that comes to my mind, you know, like what might this be about? And this just uh, evokes images of astronauts who are doing things in space that you have to do if you're up there long enough. But I'm I'm assuming it hasn't doesn't have anything to do with that. Or actually it might. So maybe something like that. Some kind of a sanitation theme here. I don't know. Yeah, I have no idea. I just, I feel like every like mission from NASA in the 60s was so interesting and unique and had so many kind of random things going on mm -hmm. happening and yeah. so that's why it's tough to keep track of all the kind of random fun things that mm -hmm. were, were happening washing your hands it's good advice in general but in this case it's something that's significant that happened in 1962 so yeah i don't know but uh if anyone out there thinks that they know give us a tweet with the hashtag this week sf and good luck good luck everybody So in the news, GOES 17, there was an issue, and now we think we know what that issue was. I guess maybe we should first talk about what the GOES 17 satellite is, right? So this is a weather satellite? Yeah, a geostationary one that, you know, there's a few of them, and they just park them in different geostationary orbits and just aim at different parts of uh, basically the Americas. These are the ones that have the really, really, really sick, like, beautiful high-resolution yeah. images. So. <laughs> 
whenever you're kind of like, oh my god, that's the best looking picture of Earth I've ever seen, it's probably from a GOES imager, It's my guess. <laughs> so what was this issue? So there was a heating problem, right? Yeah, so this this one was, yeah, GOES 17 specifically, and they launched it last year, and during their on-orbit checkout, they found that there was an issue with the cooling system. And so this has been known since the beginning. They played around trying to fix it, but by the time they did all their troubleshooting after a month, they were just kind of like, all right, well, we got to go public with the fact that we've got an issue here. And so, uh, like you had mentioned, right, this is an Earth monitoring satellite. And so of the kind of different places to look at, this was going to take over the Western Hemisphere from GOES-15, which was launched two before this one. And so there's uh, still a GOES-East that's functioning nicely. That's kind of taking care of uh, the eastern part of uh, North America. And there's other ones that are, you know, checking out part of the uh, southern hemisphere as well. But um, the first thing to note is that this wasn't going to interrupt coverage that we had. Uh, GOES-15 is still there looking basically in the same direction as uh, GOES-17. So there hasn't been an interrupt in the visible data, but there, uh, so GOES-17, right, just being newer, it's better, more you know, advanced, nicer technology in there. And so it's more advanced uh, imager, uh, unfortunately, has some limitations right now and probably always will. This has infrared imaging ability, and that's the problem, right? Because you have to keep that below a certain temperature. And so mm -hmm. that's kind of what's not working. So they can still see things in visible light, but if you want to take infrared, that type of imagery, you can't do it now with this satellite. Exactly. Like we talked about with, uh, with Kepler, right? Yeah, yeah. And how Kepler kind of managed to do too. the war mission. Yeah, exactly. And so there's, yeah, there's, there's actually 16 different spectral bands. And of those 16, two are visible, and then the rest are all in near-infrared varying out to mid-infrared. And it turns out that because of the issue with the cooling system, which is two uh, loop heat pipes, which basically just kind of pump a fluid through a loop and, you know, absorbs the heat at the one end, so the fluid gets vaporized at the one end, works its way to the radiator where it condenses out and removes that heat. And these are good, apparently, to be used in space. Heat pipes are really cool because they don't actually have any moving parts except for the the fluid that's moving through them. They use capillary action to like return liquid to the hot spot, and then they, the liquid evaporates and migrates as a gas down to the cool spot. So there's, I don't want to undersell how cool loop heat pipes are. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so these, these ones were manufactured by was then orbital ATK before they got mm -hmm. uh, absorbed. And um, unfortunately they found very quickly that they were not performing as they were supposed to. And so they weren't getting uh, warm enough for uh, essentially half the day. Because when they're at night, I guess it's cold enough that even without the cooling system operating, mm -hmm. they can still use these infrared bands. But of those 16 different channels, only the three shortest wavelengths, so two visible and the shortest wavelength infrared, are able to go for more than 12 hours a day. Which is a real bummer because, I mean, there's a reason why they throw so many infrared bands there. It's like, you know... That helps with uh, what monitoring water vapor. I gotta imagine that's a big part of it because that's always related to infrared. 
as well as some of the other things. But we still get pretty pictures 24-7 from it, so that's that's good. I'm kind of wondering now what the difference is between this and Kepler, because Kepler, as I recall, had to have an onboard nitrogen supply, right? And that's how it cooled helium. the instrument. Yeah, I'm sorry, helium. But this doesn't need that. This just actually radiates the heat away. So why couldn't Kepler do that? Or does Kepler look a little bit more deeper into the infrared or something like that? Because, I mean, this seems like a better solution. You just have to radiate the heat away. But I right. guess, is it because Kepler's closer to the sun or something? I don't actually remember the orbit. <laughs> um, no, I, th I think I think you're exactly right. I think it's just that Kepler reaches a lot to a lot longer wavelengths. Yeah. Okay. If anything, the infrared situation would be tougher for GOES, right? Because it's got a giant infrared Earth shining on it, you know? <laughs> What's the GOES wavelength range? Uh, from blue to 13 microns. So this is, rel and this okay, isn't well, the longest. So Kepler was 430 to 890 nanometers. So that's that's the, the difference there is we're talking about like yeah. a, a, a order of magnitude. Hold on a second. <laughs> I, ga I got I to hand in my um, astronomer card. We're talking yeah. about the wrong space telescope. Spitzer. Oh, Spitzer. Oh. That's what we meant. This. I. I'm sorry. I'm officially uh, resigning from my post here. I will. No, no, no. Call my good, mom and go good. home. Okay. <laughs> yeah. No. Everything we just said it's was the about weekend, Spitzer. Buddy. <laughs> uh, three. Yeah. Okay. Three. Three point six to one sixty nanometers. So yeah. still an order of magnitude. Mm -hmm. Oh no, three three point six versus three nanometers. So that's actually um Well, I mean Spitzer when it was cold Spitzer went out to looks like hundred and sixty microns as opposed to thirteen microns. Oh okay. Oh right, it's the long end. You're right. Yeah, it's the long end that we gotta worry about. Exactly. And so basically once they figured out there was an issue, they assembled a uh, five member a mishap investigation board. And so they had been looking into this for, you know, I guess it's been a little over a year now, and they just released the report. And while, you know, it was clear that it was an issue with the cooling system, the question is, what about the cooling system? Is it especially since, like you were saying, Ben, right, there aren't really moving parts and it's not a terribly complex sort of thing. But it turned out that there was a blockage somewhere is the most likely issue. And so it's not able to, you know, the fluid can't flow through uh, like it wants to. And so this is happening in both loop heat pipes. And so I'm not entirely oh, wow. sure if it's just twice the bad luck or the way that they were manufactured or if they have a common element at some point upstream. But I don't understand yeah. how or why that would introduce the foreign debris in there. But uh, yeah, so it's it's not a total block. It's just a restricted flow rate that just doesn't let it get cold enough for most of these uh these wavelength bands. So the way that they're able to diagnose this, I'm I'm guessing maybe you can tell me more. Is um, uh, heat pipes basically allow you to transport heat without a huge temperature difference between hot and cold? Because that's like that's the big issue, right? Is anything can radiate off heat. It just the differences between the hot and the cold side are are going to be pretty drastic. So these heat pipes are really good at bringing those two very, very close to each other. And so what I'm guessing happened is that they're seeing high temperatures on the spacecraft, or a, a big difference in temperature between the spacecraft, the, the elements that they're trying to cool, and the, the, out, the radiator element. And so because they see that too wide of a temperature difference, they can say, okay, it's got to be between these two, th these two things. And the only thing between them is literally the heat pipe, right? Is, is that what they're looking at? Yeah, that sounds like my understanding of it. Yep. Okay. Diagnosis like this is so interesting when you don't have access to the thing, right? Like right. whenever something in my house breaks, 
I diagnose it by trial and error. Let me fix this. Oh, that worked. Let me fix that. Oh, it didn't work. But to diagnose something that's in space that you literally, all you have is the telemetry from instruments that you installed years and years and years ago. I, I think that process is so interesting. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I mean, as, as we've been talking about this, even that not having access to it, I still have in my head the image of the uh, loop heat pipes you know what i mean and the image Mm. of the uh, obstruction and all that but like you said yeah they're looking at data they're looking at numbers and Mm -hmm. letters on the screen what else could that be really because if they can monitor the the temperature and they're seeing that it's not getting cold enough then that means heat is not being transferred as efficiently as it should be and since Mm -hmm. you know there's a pipe that does that then obviously the flow is somehow restricted well it's interesting that they they're able to say that it's a, a flow restriction and not like um, thermal compound or, or a solder joint or something keeping heat from flowing from, you know, into the pipe that they're mm-hmm. able to say that it's the pipe itself and not its connection points. So it, it, it's oddly specific for, you know, the chump that I am. I guess maybe they had run tests prior and they, you know, know some things. And then so like maybe a contaminant is the only likely cause Perhaps they did check the flow and there's obviously no obstruction from any kind of a solder joint or something. And so there has to be a contaminant, I guess. And it's, I don't know, it's very interesting. And it's impossible for us to know how they concluded it because the report that they released was just essentially summarizing everything to the public as well as going through, you know, calculating damages of, you know, of what this mistake cost. But the actual uh, report as to how they determine all that is NASA sensitive. And so we're not going to be able to see it. Yeah. Evidently contains proprietary information. And so the one, the, the one thing, like as, a, as far as those damages go, goes 17 was supposed to have less than six hours of data loss per year. And while they're still able to recover essentially 97% of what they're taking, that's still obviously much more than they're going to lose more, much more than six hours per year. Mm-hmm. And so as a result, they crunched some numbers. It's a $100 million mission, and the mishap has been classified as 3% of that. So this was a $3 million error. That's the value of what they're losing uh, by not being able to cool the infrared channels during the daytime. That sucks. Yeah. yeah. It kind of reminds me of uh, another satellite failure that was also in, in the news. I mean, that was uh, the Intelsat 29E that had some kind of an external event and they had some ground tracking of it. And you can actually see that it looked like it like vented a bunch of gas or something, but it's actually still there, although the orbit has since drifted. But it could have been a fuel tank rupture due to a micrometeoroid. Yeah, how they diagnose these things is quite remarkable. But uh, the problem is that once it's happened, you know, like you can't go back up there and fix it. So I think that this actually is an even bigger loss. I I think it's more than just $3 million because the satellite is not even usable at all. So that's a bummer for Intelsat. uh, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you don't want things to go wrong on satellites. It is hard to deal with afterwards. Unless, you know, sort of next generation idea of having repair craft go up there and sort of fix things. But that's, that's so... That's not near future, I don't think. <laughs> it just sounds like a cool job that someone could have, you know, or some kind of a business. <laughs> like, you know, you just have to get to the satellite, fix it, fix this $100 million satellite, and then it's good to go. The trick is just to get that mission to cost less than, yeah. you know, the cost then of the, the satellite. 
right? Yeah. Because, yeah, I forget yeah, where I was listening to it. But, yeah, there's, I mean, there's, right, there's companies that are developing these to try to be generic enough that satellites come in a lot of different shapes and sizes. And so how are you going to be able to have a non-customized uh, spacecraft capable of repairing it remotely, control it remotely, and send it on up there and have it turn some screws or whatever, pull off pieces of foam? We'll see. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think it might even be easier eventually to, well, first of all, a fully reusable launch vehicle, right? Because you need that in order to make it cost effective. And then just put some astronauts on there and have them fix it because they're people. Mm -hmm. In many ways, it's a lot easier to have people fix things, even though you do have the whole human But then we get into that Love, Death, and Robots episode. Right. Oh, Love, Death, and Robots. Oh, that poor woman. (laughs) If you didn't watch it, for me, I would recommend not watching it because I when I was done with it, I was like, okay, I didn't need to see that. If you did see it, there was kind of one major thing that happened in it that's very memorable. It's a horror thing. And if you're, if you're into horror, then I'm sure it's great, but I really am not. I need to go watch the yogurt one again because that was so good. Moving on to short and sweet. Uh, What's our first one, Dennis? Elon Musk to give update on Starship in three weeks. So keep an eye out. Elon Musk tweeted that SpaceX plans to give a detailed review of the first orbital starship on August 24th in Boca Chica, Texas. He stated that they should have the Mark 1 vehicle with three Raptor engines ready by then, and the review will include going over, quote, the pros and cons of each design decision. Along with a Mark II starship being constructed in Cocoa, Florida, these two full-scale prototypes will be capable of suborbital flight with a six-engine orbital rocket to be built and flown in the coming years. Next up, OneWeb opens for production in Florida. The UK-based internet satellite company has opened its first facility in Merritt Island, Florida in close proximity to KSC. The facility is over 105,000 square feet in size and is equipped with two production lines, each capable of producing two satellites per day which is amazing by the way i don't know how they do that uh this this new facility will bring around 250 new jobs to the space coast and possibly more as the production is hoped to increase from 650 satellites initially to a total of 1980 so that's amazing yeah i'm not sure how you make two satellites a day yeah that's that's real uh henry ford kind of stuff yeah satellites just hopefully with less racism yeah (laughs) Sad but true, yeah. And finally, Idris shows off its abilities. At an event in Brussels, Airbus demonstrated the power of the European Data Relay Satellite Network. Within 20 minutes, it was able to relay satellite data that made real-time observations of 60,000 square kilometers of ocean and pinpoint the location of ocean-going vessels and perform analyses of their wakes for possible oil spills. The next Idris satellite will launch on August 6th aboard an Ariane 5 from French Guiana. Very cool. That is very cool. All right. So again, no questions, comments, or corrections this week. So we're just going to move straight on to upcoming spaceflight events. So first up, we've got a Falcon 9. We'll be launching on August 6th hopefully, uh, taking the Amos-17 communications uh, satellite. And so this is a uh, satellite built by Boeing and owned by uh, Spacecom of Israel. And it's just, you know, a a high broadband or high throughput broadband communication satellite for services over Africa, the Middle East, and Europe. So the launch will be taking place on August 6th or 7th, depending on where you are, from uh, approximately 2252 to 0120 GMT, launching out of Space Launch Complex 40 in Cape Canaveral. And I guess SpaceX is taking no chances with this one because they lost their previous Amos satellite, right? Was that Amos 6? It blew up on the pad. It was a sniper. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> so on August 8th, next one is uh, in Atlas 5, and that's launching AEHF-5, the Advanced Extremely High Frequency Satellite. That's an Air Force Space Command satellite. So that's launching into a geosynchronous orbit, and that's launching in the 551 configuration. So I imagine that means it's a pretty hefty satellite, plus it's going to geosynchronous orbit. Anyway, that uh, has a launch window of 0944 through 1144 GMT or UTC. Take your pick. Uh, that's a two-hour launch window, and that's launching from SLC-41. And that's at Cape Canaveral Air Force Station, obviously. So you can check that one out. It'll be kind of early, but if you're up early, you can totally watch it. Alrighty. Well, those are your upcoming spaceflight events. And with that, we will do up with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreons supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen, or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcasts on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbital mechanics.com. All right, that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.